0: I now call the Right Honourable George Osborne, Chancellor of the Exchequer.
1: (laughs) Mr Deputy Speaker, today I report on an economy set to grow faster than any other major advanced economy in the world. I report on a labour market delivering the highest employment in our history and I report on a deficit down by two-thirds, falling each year, and I can confirm today on course for a budget surplus. The British economy is stronger because we confronted our country's problems and took the difficult decisions. The British economy is growing because we didn't seek short-term fixes but pursued a long-term economic plan. The British economy is resilient because whatever the challenge, however strong the headwinds, we have held to the course we set out. I must tell the House that we face such a challenge now. Financial markets are turbulent, productivity growth across the West is too low, and the outlook for the global economy is weak. It makes for a dangerous cocktail of risks, but one that Britain is well prepared to handle if we act now so we don't pay later. Now Mr Deputy Speaker, Britain has learnt to its cost what happens when you base your economic policy on the assumption that you have abolished boom and bust. Britain is not immune to slowdowns and shocks, but nor as a nation are we powerless. We have a choice. We can choose to add to the risk and uncertainty, or we can choose to be a force for stability. In this budget, we choose to put stability first. Britain can choose, as others are, short-term fixes and more stimulus, or we can lead the world with long-term solutions to long-term problems. In this budget, we choose the long-term. We choose to put the next generation first. We choose, as Conservatives should always choose, sound public finances to deliver security, lower taxes on business and enterprise to create jobs, reform to improve schools, investment to build homes and infrastructure, because we know that's the only way to deliver real opportunity and social mobility. And as Conservatives we know that the best way we can help working people is to help them to save and let them keep more of the money they earn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now that is the path we've followed over the past five years and it's given us one of the strongest economies in the world. And that is the path we'll follow in the years ahead. In this budget we redouble our efforts to make Britain fit for the future. Mr Deputy Speaker, let me turn to the economic forecasts. I want to thank Robert Choate and his team at the Office for Budget Responsibility. To make sure they have available to them the best statistics in the world, I am today accepting all of the recommendations of Sir Charlie Bean's excellent report. And I also want to take this moment to thank another great public servant, Sir Nicholas Macpherson. He has served as Permanent Secretary to the Treasury for ten years under three very different Chancellors. (laughs) And throughout, he has always demonstrated the great British civil service values of integrity and impartiality. He's here today... To watch the last of 34 budgets he's worked on, and on behalf of the House and the dedicated officials in the Treasury, I thank him for his service. Mr Deputy Speaker, the OBR tell us today that in every year of the forecast, our economy grows and so too does our productivity. But they have revised down growth in the world economy and in world trade. In their words, the outlook is materially weaker. They point to the turbulence in financial markets, slower growth in emerging economies like China, and weak growth across the developed world. Around the globe they note that monetary policy, instead of normalising this year as expected, has been further loosened. We have seen the Bank of Japan join Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland and the European Central Bank with unprecedented negative interest rates. The OBR also note that this reflects concerns across the West about low productivity growth. The Secretary-General of the OECD said last month that productivity growth has been decelerating in a vast majority of countries. And as a result, the most significant change the OBR have made since their November forecast is their decision to revise down potential UK productivity growth. The OBR had thought that what they describe as the drag from the financial crisis on our productivity would have eased by now, but the latest data shows it has not. The OBR acknowledged today that this revision is, in their own words, a highly uncertain judgment call. But I back them 100%. We saw under the last Labour government what happened when a Chancellor of the Exchequer revised up the trend growth rate, spent money the country didn't have, and left it to the next generation to pick up the bill. I am not going to let that happen on my watch. Now, these days, Thanks to the fact we have established independent forecasts, our country is confronted with the truth as economic challenges emerge and can act on them before it's too late. We fix our plans to fit the figures. We don't fix the figures to fit the plans. <laughs> now, the IMF have warned us this month that the global economy is at a delicate juncture and faces a growing risk of economic derailment. Eight years ago, Britain was the worst prepared of any of the major economies for the crisis we then faced. Today Britain is among the best prepared for whatever challenges may lie ahead. And that is what our long-term economic plan has all been about. When I became Chancellor, we borrowed £1 in every four we spent. Next year, it will be £1 in every 14 that we spend. Our banks have doubled their capital ratios, we have doubled our foreign exchange reserves, and we have a clear, consistent and accountable monetary policy framework admired around the world. The hard work of fixing our economy is paying off. In 2014, we were the fastest major growing, fastest major advanced economy in the world. In 2015, we were ahead of everyone but America. So let me give the OBR's latest forecast for our economic growth in the face of the new assessment of productivity and the slowing global economy. Last year, GDP grew by 2.2%. The OBR now forecasts it will grow by 2% this year, then 2% then 2.2% again in 2017 and then 2.1% in each of the three years after that. Now the House will want to know how this compares to other countries. I can confirm that in these turbulent times, the latest international forecast expects Britain to grow faster this year than any other major advanced economy in the world. Mr Deputy Speaker, the OBR are explicit today that their forecasts are predicated on Britain remaining in the European Union. Over the next next few months, this country is going to debate the merits of leaving or remaining in the European Union. And I have many colleagues who I respect greatly on both sides of the argument. The OBR correctly stay out of the political debate and they do not assess the long-term costs and benefits of EU membership. But they do say this, and I quote them directly, A vote to leave in the forthcoming referendum could usher in an extended period of uncertainty regarding the precise terms of the UK's future relationship with the EU. They go on to say, This could have negative implications for activity via business and consumer confidence and might result in greater volatility in financial and other asset markets. Citing a number of external reports, the OBR say this there appears to be a greater consensus that a vote to leave would result in a period of potentially disruptive uncertainty while the precise details of the UK's new relationship with the EU were negotiated. Mr Deputy Speaker, the House knows my view. Britain will be stronger, safer and better off inside a reformed European Union. And I believe... We should not put at risk all the hard work the British people have done to make our economy strong again. Yeah. <coughs> Mr Deputy Speaker, yeah. <coughs> Mr Deputy Speaker, yeah. Let-
0: what, what, what. Look, let's be honest, we all want to hear what the Chancellor has got to say. Yeah. Yeah. Some people may agree, some people may disagree, but I want to hear him. The electorate wants to hear him, this country wants to hear him. Chancellor yeah. Yeah.
2: Mr
1: Deputy Speaker, let me turn to the OBR forecasts for the labour market. Since the autumn statement just four months ago, the businesses in our economy have created over 150,000 more jobs than the OBR expected. That's 150,000 extra families with the security of work, that's 150,000 reasons to support our long-term economic plan. (coughs) This morning, unemployment fell again employment reached the highest level ever and the data confirms that we have the lowest proportion of people claiming out-of-work benefits since November 1974. Now the OBR are forecasting a million more jobs over this parliament Mr Deputy Speaker, we remember what our political opponents said in the last Parliament. They claimed a million jobs would be lost. Instead, two million were created. And when the jobs started coming, we were told they were going to be low-skilled. But today we know almost 90% of the new jobs are in skilled occupations. We were told the jobs were going to be part-time, but three-quarters are full-time. We were told the jobs will all be in London. But the unemployment rate is falling fastest in the North East. Youth unemployment is falling fastest in the West Midlands. Employment is going fastest in the North West forecast, real wages continue to grow and outstrip inflation in each and every year. Yeah, 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 yeah. <coughs> Mr Deputy Speaker, the OBR forecasts lower inflation at 0.7% this year and 1.6% next year. I am today confirming in a letter to the Governor of the Bank of England that the remit for the Monetary Policy Committee remains the symmetric CPI inflation target of 2%. I'm also publishing the new remit for the Financial Policy Committee, the body we created to keep an eye on emerging long-term risks in our financial system. I'm asking them to be particularly vigilant in the face of current market turbulence. Because in this budget, we act now so we don't don't pay later. Mr Deputy Speaker, that brings me to our approach to public spending and the OBR forecast for our public finances. In every year since 2010, I have been told by the opposition that now is not the right time to cut government spending. When the economy is growing, I'm told we can afford to spend more. When the economy isn't growing, I'm told we can't afford not to. Today, I'm publishing new analysis that shows that if we hadn't taken the action we did in 2010 and listened instead to our opponents, then cumulative borrowing would have been £930 billion more by the end of the decade. And it is now forecast to be. If we'd taken their advice, Britain would not have been one of the best prepared economies for the current global uncertainties. We would have been one of the worst prepared. Now, the very same people are saying to us we should spend more again. I reject that dangerous advice. The security of families and businesses depends on Britain living within its means. Last autumn's spending review delivers a reduction in government consumption that is judged by the OBR to be the most sustained undertaken in the last hundred years of British history, barring the periods of demobilisation after the First and Second World Wars. My spending plans in the last Parliament reduced the share of national income taken by the State from the unsustainable 45% we inherited to 40% today. My spending plans in this Parliament will see it fall to 36.9% by the end of this decade. In other words, the country will be spending no more than the country raises in taxes. And we are achieving this while at the same time increasing resources for our NHS and schools, building new infrastructure, and increasing our security at home and abroad. The OBR now tells us that the world has become more uncertain. So we have two options. We can ignore the latest information and spend more than the country can afford. That's precisely the mistake that was made a decade ago. Or we can live in the world as it is, and cut our cloth accordingly. I say we act now so we don't pay later. So I am asking my Right Honourable friends, the Chief Secretary and the Paymaster General, to undertake a further drive for efficiency and value for money. The aim is to save a further three and a half billion pounds in the year 2019-20. At less than half a percent of government spending in four years' time, that is more than achievable while maintaining the protections we have set out. At the same time, we will continue to deliver sensible reforms to keep Britain living within its means. On welfare, last week my right honourable friend the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions set out changes that will ensure that within the rising disability budget support is better targeted at those who need it most. Let me confirm that this means the disability budget will still rise by more than a billion pounds and will be spending more in real terms supporting disabled people than at any point under the last Labour government. On international aid, I am proud to be part of a Government that was the first to honour Britain's commitment to spend 0.7% of national income on development. Now we won't spend more than that, so the Budget will be readjusted, saving £650 million in 2019-20. We're also going to keep public sector pensions sustainable. We reformed them in the last Parliament, which will save over £400 billion in the long term. To ensure those pensions remain sustainable we've carried out the regular revaluation of the discount rate and the public sector employer contributions will rise as a result this will not affect anyone's pension and will be affordable within spending plans that are benefiting from the fiscal windfall of lower inflation each of these decisions are a demonstration of our determination that the British economy will stay on course and we will not burden our children and grandchildren. This is a budget for the next generation. Mr Deputy Speaker, let me now give the OBR's forecasts for the debt and the deficit. The combination of our action to reduce borrowing this year, along with the revisions to our nominal GDP driven by lower inflation, have produced this paradoxical result. In cash terms, the national debt is lower than it was forecast to be in the autumn, but so too is the nominal size of our economy. We measure the fiscal target against debt to GDP. So while debt as a percentage of GDP is above target and set to be higher in 2015-16 than the year before, compared to the forecast, the actual level of our national debt is in cash £9 billion lower. In the future, debt falls to 82.6% next year, then 81.3% in 2017-18, then 79.9% the year after. In 2019-20, it falls again to 77.2%, then down again the year after to 74.7%. Let me turn to the forecast for the deficit. When I became Chancellor, the deficit we inherited was forecast to reach 11.1% of national income, the highest level in the peacetime history of Britain. Thanks to our sustained action, the deficit is forecast to fall next year to just over a quarter of that at 2.9%. In 2017-18, it falls to 1.9%. Then it falls again to 1% in 2018-19. In cash terms in 2010, British borrowing was a totally unsustainable £150 billion a year. This year we are expected to borrow less than half of that at £72.2 billion. Indeed, our borrowing this year is actually lower than the OBR forecast of the autumn statement borrowing continues to fall but not by as much as before to 55.5 billion pounds next year 38.8 billion the year after that and 21.4 billion in 2018-19. Now, I know there has been concern that the challenging economic times mean we would lose our surplus the following year, and that would have been the case if we had not taken further action today to control spending and make savings. But because we have acted decisively, in 2019 20, Britain is set to have a surplus of £10.4 billion. Yeah surplus is then set to rise to £11 billion the year after, that's 0.5% of GDP in both years. We said we would take the action necessary to give Britain's families economic security. We said our country would not repeat the mistakes of the past and instead live within our means. Today we maintain that commitment to long-term stability in challenging times. Decisive action to achieve a £10 billion surplus. We act now so we don't pay later. We put the next generation first. Mr Deputy Speaker, in every budget I've given, action against tax avoidance and evasion has contributed to the repair of our public finances. And this budget is no different. In the Red Book, we set out in detail the action we will take to shut down disguised remuneration schemes, to ensure that UK tax will be paid on UK property development. We change the treatment of free plays for remote gaming providers. We limit capital gains tax treatment on performance rewards and cap exempt gains in the employee shareholder status. Public sector organisations will have a new duty to ensure that those working for them pay the correct tax rather than giving a tax advantage to those who choose to contract their work through personal service companies. Loans to participators will be taxed at 32.5% to prevent tax avoidance and will tighten rules around the use of termination payments. Termination payments over £30,000 are already subject to income tax. From 2018 they will also attract employer national insurance. Taken to take altogether, the further steps in this budget to stop tax evasion, prevent tax avoidance and tackle imbalances in the system will raise £12 billion for our country over this Parliament. The party opposite talked about social justice but left enormous loopholes in our tax system for the very richest to exploit. While the independent statistics confirm That under this Prime Minister, child poverty is down, pensioner poverty is down, inequality is down and the gender pay gap has never been smaller. The distributional analysis published today shows that the proportion of welfare and public services going to the poorest has been protected. And I can report that the latest figures confirm the richest 1% Paid 28% of all income tax revenue, a higher proportion than in any single year of the last Labour oh, government. Yeah. Prove that we are all in this together. Look, yeah.
0: so. it's, it's strange that we can't hear your own Chancellor of the Exchequer. Oh, yeah. I want to hear I'm sure you must do as well. Ah, ah, <laughs> Chancellor of the Exchequer.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> no, don't like it. So Mr Deputy Speaker, I can report solid, steady growth, more jobs, lower inflation, an economy on course for a surplus, and all done in a fair way, a Britain prepared for whatever the world throws at us because we've stuck to our long-term economic plan. Mr Deputy Speaker, credible fiscal policy and effective monetary policy has only ever been part of our plan. A crucial ingredient has always been the lasting structural reforms needed to make our economy fit for the future. And with new risks on the horizon and with all Western countries looking for ways to increase living standards, now is not the time to go easy on our structural reforms. It's time to redouble our efforts. My budgets last year delivered key improvements to productivity like the apprenticeship levy, lower corporation tax and the national living wage. My budget this year sets out these further bold steps we need to take. One, fundamental reform of the business tax system, loopholes closed, reliefs reduced but so too are rates and the result a huge boost for small business and enterprise. Two, a radical devolution of power so more of the responsibility and the rewards of economic growth are in the hands of local communities three major new commitments to the national infrastructure projects of the future four confronting the obstacles that stand in the way of important improvements to education and our children's future and five backing people who work hard and save in short this budget puts the next generation first and i take each step in turn mr deputy speaker In the last Parliament, I cut corporation tax dramatically, but I also introduced the Diverted Profits Tax to catch those trying to shift profits overseas. As a result, Britain went from one of the least competitive business tax regimes to one of the most competitive, and we raised much more money for our public services. Today the Financial Secretary and I are publishing a roadmap to make Britain's business tax system fit for the future. It will deliver a low-tax regime that will attract the multinational businesses we want to see in Britain, but ensure that they pay taxes here too – something that never happened under a Labour government. And it will level the playing field which has been tilted against our small firms. The approach we take is guided by the best practice set out by the OECD – work which Britain called for, Britain paid for, and Britain will be among the very first to implement. First. Some multinationals <laughs> deliberately overborrow in the UK to fund activities abroad and then deduct the interest bills against their UK profits. So from April next year we will restrict interest deductibility for the largest companies at 30% of UK earnings while making sure firms whose activities justify higher borrowing are protected with a group ratio rule. Next, we're setting new hybrid mismatch rules to stop the complex structures that allow some multinationals to avoid paying any tax anywhere or to deduct the same expenses in more than one country. (laughs) Then, we're going to strengthen our withholding tax on the royalty payments that allow some firms to shift money to tax havens And lastly, we're going to modernise the way we treat losses. We're going to allow firms to use losses more flexibly in a way that will help over 70,000 mostly British companies. But with these new flexibilities in place, we'll do what other countries do and restrict the maximum amount of profits that can be offset using past losses to 50%. This will only apply to the less than 1% of firms making profits over £5 million, and the existing rules for historic losses in the banking sector will be tightened to 25%. We'll maintain our plans to align tax payment dates for the largest companies more closely to when profits are earned, but we will give firms longer to adjust to these changes, which will now come into effect in April 2019. All of these reforms to corporation tax will help create a modern tax code that better reflects the reality of the global economy. And together they raise £9 billion in extra revenue for the exchequer. But our policy is not to raise taxes on business, our policy is to lower taxes on business. So everything we collect from the largest firms who are trying to pay no tax will be used to help millions of firms who pay their fair share of tax. I can confirm today we're going to reduce the rate of corporation tax even further. That's the rate Britain's profit-making companies, large and small, have to pay. And all the evidence shows it's one of the most distortive and unproductive taxes there is. Corporation tax was 28% at the start of the last parliament, and we reduced it so that it's 20% at the start of this one. Last summer, I set out a plan to cut it to 18% in the coming years. Today, I'm going further. By April 2020, it will fall to 17%. Britain is blazing a trail. Let the rest of the world catch up. Mr Deputy Speaker. Cutting corporation tax is only part of our plan for the future. I also want to address the great unfairness that many small businessmen and women feel when they compete against companies on the internet. Sites like eBay and Amazon have provided an incredible platform for many new small British startups to reach large numbers of customers, but there's been a big rise in overseas suppliers storing goods in Britain and selling them online without paying VAT. That unfairly undercuts British businesses, both on the internet and on the high street, and today I can announce we're taking action to stop it. That's the first thing we do to help our small firms. Second, we're going to help the new world of micro-entrepreneurs who sell services online or rent out their homes through the internet. Our tax system should be helping these people So I'm introducing two new tax-free allowances, each worth £1,000 a year, for both trading and property income. There will be no forms to fill in, no tax to pay. It's a tax break for the digital age, and at least half a million people will benefit. (laughs) On top of these two measures comes the biggest tax cut for business in this Budget. Business rates are the fixed costs that weigh down on many small enterprises. At present, small business rate relief is only permanently available to firms with a rateable value of less than £6,000. In the past, I've been able to double it for one year only. Today, I am more than doubling it, and more than doubling it permanently. The new threshold for small business rate relief will raise from £6,000 to a maximum threshold of £15,000 and I'm also going to raise the threshold for the higher rate from £18,000 to £51,000. Let me explain to the House what this means. From April next year, 600,000 small businesses will pay no business rates at all an annual saving for them of up to nearly £6,000 forever. A further quarter of a million businesses will see their rates cut. In total, half of all British properties will see their business rates fall or be abolished altogether. And to support all ratepayers, including larger stores who face tough competition, and who employs so many people, we will radically simplify the administration of business rates and from 2020 switch the up rating from the higher RPI to the lower CPI. That's a permanent long-term saving for all businesses in Britain. A typical corner shop in Barnstable will pay no business rates. A typical hairdresser in Leeds will pay no business rates. A typical newsagent in Nuneaton will pay no business rates. <laughs> Mr Deputy Speaker. This is a budget which gets rid of loopholes for multinationals and gets rid of tax for small businesses. A £7 billion tax cut for our nation of shopkeepers, a tax system that says to the world, we're open for business. This is a Conservative government that is on your side. (laughs) (laughs) Mr Deputy Speaker, just over a year ago, I reformed residential stamp duty. We moved from a distorted slab system to a much simpler slice system. And as a result, 98% of home buyers are paying the same or less, and revenues from the expensive properties have risen. The IMF welcomed the changes and suggests we do the same to commercial property. So that's what we're going to do, and in a way that helps our small firms. At the moment, a small firm can pay just £1 more for a property and face a tax bill three times as large. That makes no sense. So from now on, commercial stamp duty will have a zero rate band on purchases up to £150,000, a 2% rate on the next £100,000, and a 5% top rate above £250,000. There will also be a new 2% rate for those high-value leases with a net present value above £5 million. This new tax regime comes into effect from midnight to There are transitional rules for purchasers who have exchanged but not completed contracts before midnight. These reforms raise £500 million a year, And while 9% will pay more, over 90% will see their tax bills cut or stay the same. Mm. So, for example, if you buy a pub in the Midlands worth, say, £270,000, you would today pay over £8,000 in stamp duty. From tomorrow, you will pay just £3,000 in stamp duty. It's a big tax cut for small firms, all in a budget that backs small business. Mr Deputy Speaker. Businesses also want a simpler tax system. I've asked Angela Knight and John Whiting at the Office of Tax Simplification to look at what more we can do to make the tax system work better for small firms, and I'm funding a dramatic improvement in the service that HMRC offers them. Many retailers have complained bitterly to me about the complexity of the carbon reduction commitment. It's not a commitment, it's a tax. So I can tell the House, we're not going to reform it. Instead, I've decided to abolish it altogether. And to make good the lost revenue, the climate change levy will rise from 2019. The most energy-intensive industries like steel remain completely protected, and I'm extending the climate change agreements that help many others. The Energy Secretary and I are announcing £730 million in further auctions to back renewable technologies and we're now inviting bids to help develop the next generation of small modular reactors. We're also going to help one of the most important and valued industries in our United Kingdom that has been severely affected by global events. The oil and gas sector employs hundreds of thousands of people in Scotland and around our country. In my budget a year ago, I made major reductions to their taxes. But the oil price has continued to fall, so we need to act now for the long term. I am today cutting in half the supplementary charge on oil and gas from 20% to 10%, and I'm effectively abolishing petroleum revenue tax too. Backing this key Scottish industry and supporting jobs right across
0: Just relax, more to come. Chancellor of the
2: Exchequer.
1: Both of these major tax cuts will be backdated, so they're effective from the 1st of January this year. And my honourable friend the Exchequer Secretary will work with the industry to give them our full support. Mr Deputy Speaker, we are only able to provide this kind of support to our oil and gas industry because of the broad shoulders of the United Kingdom. None of this support would have been remotely affordable if in just eight days' time Scotland had broken away from the rest of the UK as the nationalists wanted. Their own audit of Scotland's public finances confirms that they would have struggled from the start with a fiscal crisis under the burden of the highest budget deficit in the Western world. Thankfully, the Scottish people decided that we are better together in one united Mr Deputy Speaker, believing in our United Kingdom is not the same as believing that every decision should be taken here in Westminster and Whitehall. That's the next step in this budget's plan to make Britain fit for the future. Because as Conservatives we know that if you want local communities to take responsibility for local growth, they have to be able to reap the rewards. This Government is delivering the most radical devolution of power in modern British history. We're devolving power to our nations. The Scottish Secretary and I have agreed the new fiscal framework with the Scottish Government. We're also opening negotiations on a city deal with Edinburgh. We back the new V&A Museum in Dundee. And in response to the powerful case made to me by Ruth Davidson, we're providing new community facilities for local people in Helensborough and the Royal Navy personnel nearby at Faslane, paid for by our LIBOR fines. In Wales, We're committed to devolving new powers to the Assembly, and yesterday, my right hon. friends, the Welsh Secretary and the Chief Secretary, signed a new billion-pound deal for the Cardiff region. We're opening discussion on a city deal for Swansea and a growth deal for North Wales, so it's better connected to our northern powerhouse. I've listened to the case made by Welsh Conservative colleagues, and I can announce today that from 2018, we're going to halve the price of the tolls on the seven crossings. My final friend, the Northern Ireland Secretary, and I are working towards the devolution of corporation tax. And I'm also extending enhanced capital allowances to the enterprise zone in Coleraine. And we will use over £4 million from LIBOR fines to help establish the first air ambulance service for Northern Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Deputy Speaker, in this budget, we make major further advances in the devolution of power within England, too. It was less than two years ago that I called for the creation of strong elected mayors to help us build a northern powerhouse. Since then, powerful elected mayors have been agreed for Manchester, Liverpool, Tees Valley, Newcastle and Sheffield. Over half of the population of the northern powerhouse will be able to elect a mayor accountable to them next year. We'll have an elected mayor for the West Midlands too. These new devolution arrangements evolve and grow stronger. Today I can tell the House that my Right honourable friend the Justice Secretary and I are transferring new powers over the criminal justice system to Greater Manchester. This is the kind of progressive social policy that this Government is proud to pioneer. And I can also announce to the House today that for the first time we've reached agreement to establish new elected mayors in our English counties and southern cities too. I want to thank my Right Honourable Friend the Community Secretary and my Treasury colleague Jim O'Neill for their superhuman efforts. We've agreed a single powerful East Angular combined authority headed up by an elected mayor and almost a billion pounds of new investment. We've also agreed a new West of England mayoral authority, and they too will see almost a billion pounds invested locally. And the authorities of Greater Lincolnshire will have new powers, new funding and a new mayor. North, south, east and west, the devolution revolution is taking hold. (laughs) Mr Deputy Speaker, when I became Chancellor, 80% of local government funding came in largely ring-fenced grants from central government. It was the illusion of local democracy. By the end of this Parliament, 100% of local government resources will come from local government. Raised locally, spent locally, invested locally. Our great capital city wants to lead the way. My friend the Mayor of London and my honourable friend that for rich Park, passionately argue for the devolution of business rates. I can confirm today that the Greater London Authority will move towards full retention of its business rates from next April, three years early. And Michael Hesseltine has accepted our invitation to lead a Thames Estuary Growth Commission and he will report to me with its ideas next year. Mr Deputy Speaker, in every international survey of our country, our failure for a generation to build new housing and new transport has been identified as a major problem. But in this government, we are the builders, and so today we are setting out measures to speed up our planning system, zone housing development, and prepare the country for the arrival of 5G technology. My renowned friend the Business Secretary will be bringing forward our innovation proposals, and because we make savings in day-to-day spending, we can accelerate capital investment and increase it as a share of GDP. All these things that a country focused on its long-term future should be doing. Our new stamp duty rates on additional properties will come into effect next month. I have listened to colleagues and the rates will apply to larger investors too. We're going to use receipts to support community housing trusts, including £20 million to help young families onto the housing ladder in the south-west of England. This is a brilliant idea by my right honourable friend Vitrura and Falmouth and many other colleagues, and it's proof that when the south-west votes blue, their voice is heard loud here in Westminster. And because, under this government, we're not prepared to let people be left behind. I'm also announcing a major new package of support worth over £115 million to support those who are homeless and to reduce rough sleeping. Last year, Mr Deputy Speaker, I established a new National Infrastructure Commission to advise us all on the big, long-term decisions we need to boost our productivity. And I'm sure everyone in the House will want to thank Andrew Adonis and his fellow commissioners for getting off to such a strong start. They've already produced three impressive reports. They recommend much stronger links across northern England, so we're giving the green light to High Speed 3 between Manchester and Leeds, we're finding new money to create a four-lane M62, and we'll develop the case for a new tunnel road from Manchester to Sheffield. My honourable friends for Carlisle, Penrith and Hexham have told us not to neglect the North Pennines, so we'll upgrade the A66 and the A69 too. I said we would build the Northern Powerhouse. We've put in place the mayors, we're building the roads, we're laying the track, we're making the Northern Powerhouse a reality and rebalancing our country. Yeah. 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 I'm also accepting the Infrastructure Commission's recommendations on energy and on London transport. Yeah. The government that is delivering Crossrail 1 will now commission Crossrail 2. Yeah. I know this commitment to Crossrail 2 will be warmly welcomed by the leader of the opposition the right honourable member for Islington. It could have been designed just for him because it's good for all those who live in north London and are heading south. <laughs> 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 Mr Davieswood. Across Britain this budget invests in infrastructure from a more resilient train line in the southwest to the crossings at Ipswich and Lowestoft in the east that we promised. We are making our country stronger. To respond to the increasing extreme weather events our country is facing, I am today proposing further substantial increases in flood defences. Now that would not be affordable within existing budgets, so I'm going to increase the standard rate of insurance premium tax by just half a percent and commit all the extra money we raise to flood defence spending. That's a 700 million boost. To our resilience and flood defences. Yeah, yeah. The urgent review already underway by my honourable friends the Environment Secretary and the Chancellor of the Duchy will determine how the money is best spent but we can get started now. I've had many representations from colleagues across the House including my honourable friends for Morley and Calder Valley so we're giving the go-ahead to the schemes for York, Leeds, Calder Valley, Carlisle and across Cumbria. Yeah. In this budget, we invest in our physical infrastructure and we invest in our cultural infrastructure too. I'm supporting specific projects from the Hall for Cornwall in Truro to £13 million for Hull to make a success as City of Culture. Our Cathedral Repairs Fund has been enormously successful, so I'm extending it with an additional £20 million because there's one thing that's pretty clear these days, the Conservative Party is a broad church. (laughs) (laughs) And in the... 100th anniversary of the great playwright's death I've heard the sonnets from the Right Honourable Member for Knowsley and we commit to a new Shakespeare North Theatre there on the site of the first indoor theatre outside of our capital while my honourable friend for Newark has proposed that we introduce a new tax break for museums that develop exhibitions and take those exhibitions on tour it's a great idea and we add that to our collection today <laughs> Mr Deputy Speaker We cut taxes for business, we devolve power, we develop our infrastructure. The next part of our plan to make Britain fit for the future is to improve the quality of our children's education. Now, providing great schooling is the single most important thing we can do to help any child from a disadvantaged background succeed. It's also the single most important thing we can do to boost the long-term productivity of our economy because our nation's productivity is no more, no less than the combined talents and efforts of the people of these islands. And that is why education reform has been so central to our mission since we came to office five years ago. Today we take these further steps. First, I can announce that we're going to complete the task of setting schools free from local education bureaucracy and we're going to do it in this parliament. I am today providing extra funding so that by 2020 Every primary and secondary school in England will be or will be in the process of becoming an academy. Second, we're going to focus on the performance of schools in the North where results have not been as strong as we'd like. London's school system has been turned around. We can do the same in the Northern powers. I've asked the outstanding Bradford headteacher, Sir Nick Weller, to provide us with a plan. Third, we are going to look at teaching maths to 18 for all pupils. And fourth, we're going to introduce a fair national funding formula. I am today committing half a billion pounds to speed up its introduction. Yeah. We will consult and our objective is to get over 90% of the schools that will benefit onto the new formula by the end of this Parliament. Yeah. <coughs> the Conservative Government delivering on its promise of fair funding for our schools. Yeah. Tomorrow my right friend the Education Secretary will publish a white paper setting out further improvements we'll make to the quality of education because we will put the next generation first. Mr Deputy Speaker, doing the right thing for the next generation is what this government and this budget is about, no matter how difficult and how controversial it is. Mr Deputy Speaker, you cannot have a long-term plan for the country unless you have a long-term plan for our children's health care. And here are the facts that we know five-year-old children are consuming their body weight in sugar every year. Experts predict that within a generation, over half of all boys and 70% of girls could be overweight or obese. Here's another fact that we all know. Obesity drives disease. It increases the risk of cancer, diabetes and heart disease. And it costs our economy £27 billion a year. That's more than half the entire NHS pay bill. And here's another truth we all know. One of the biggest contributors to childhood obesity is sugary drinks. A can of cola typically has nine teaspoons of sugar in it. Some popular drinks have as many as 13. That can be more than double a child's recommended added sugar intake. Now let me give credit where credit is due. Many in the soft drinks industry recognise this as a problem and have started to reformulate their products. Robinson's recently removed added sugar from many of their cordials and squashes. Sainsbury's, Tesco, and the Co-op have all committed to reduce sugar across their ranges. So industry can act, and with the right incentives, I'm sure it will. Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm not prepared to look back at my time here in this parliament, doing this job, and say to my children's generation, I'm sorry. We knew there was a problem with sugary drinks, we knew it caused disease, but we ducked the difficult decisions and we did nothing. So today I can announce that we will introduce a new (coughs) sugar levy on the soft drinks industry. And let me explain how it will work. It will be levied on the companies, it will be introduced in two years' time to give companies plenty of space to change their product (coughs) mix, It will be assessed on the volume of the sugar-sweetened drinks they produce or import. There will be two bands, one for total sugar content above 5 grams per 100 millilitres, a second higher band for the most sugary drinks with more than 8 grams per 100 millilitres. Pure fruit juices and (coughs) milk-based drinks will be excluded and will ensure the smallest producers are kept out of scope. We will, of course, consult on implementation. <coughs> We're introducing the levy on the industry, which means they can reduce the sugar content of their products, as many already do. It means they can promote low sugar or no sugar brands, as many already are. They can take these perfectly reasonable steps to help with children's health. Of course, some may choose to pass the price on to consumers, and that will be their decision. And this would have an impact on consumption, too. We, as Conservatives, understand that tax affects behaviour, so let's tax the things we want to reduce, not the things we want to encourage. The OBR estimates that this levy will raise £520 million, and this is tied directly to the second thing we're going to do today to help children's health and well-being. We're going to use the money from this new levy to double the amount of funding we dedicate to sport in every primary school. Yeah. And for secondary schools, we're going to fund longer school days for those who want to offer their pupils a wider range of activities, including extra sport. It will be voluntary for schools, compulsory for the pupils, there will be enough resources for a quarter of secondary schools to take part, but that is just the start. The devolved administrations will receive equivalent funding through the Barnet Formula, and I hope they spend it on the next generation too. I'm also using the LIBOR funds specifically to help with children's hospital services. (laughs) Members across the House have asked for resources for children's care in Manchester, Sheffield, Birmingham and Southampton and we provide those funds today. (laughs) Mr Deputy Speaker, a determination to improve the health of our children a new levy on excessive sugar in soft drinks, the money used to double sport in our schools, a Britain fit for the future, a government not afraid to put the next generation first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mr Deputy Speaker, let me now turn to indirect taxes. Last autumn I said that we would use all the VAT we collect from sanitary products to support women's charities and I want to thank the many members here on all sides in all parties for the impressive proposals they have put forward. Today we allocate £12 million from the tampon tax to these charities across the UK from Breast Cancer Care to the White Ribbon Campaign and many other causes and we'll make substantial donations to the Rosa Fund and to Comic Relief so we reach many more grassroots causes. Mr Deputy Speaker, I now turn to excise duties. When we took office, we inherited plans that would have seen fuel duty rise above inflation every year and cost motorists 18 pence extra a litre. We wholeheartedly rejected those plans and instead we took action to help working people. We froze fuel duty throughout the last Parliament, a tax cut worth nearly £7 billion a year. In the last 12 months, petrol prices have plummeted. That is why we pencilled in an inflation rise. But I know that fuel costs still make up a significant part of household budgets and weigh heavily on small firms. Families paid the cost when oil prices rocketed. They shouldn't be penalised when oil prices fall. We are the party for working people, so I can announce that fuel duty will be frozen for the sixth year in a row. It's a saving of £75 a year to the average driver, £270 a year to the small business with a van. It's the tax boost that keeps Britain on the move. Mr Deputy Speaker, tobacco duty will continue to rise as set out in previous budgets by 2% above inflation from 6pm tonight, while hand-rolling tobacco will rise by an additional 3%. And to continue our drive to improve public health, we will reform our tobacco regime to introduce an effective Floor on the price of cigarettes and consult on increased sanctions for fraud. Mr Deputy Speaker, I've always been clear that I want to support responsible drinkers in our nation's pubs. Five years ago, we inherited tax plans that would have ruined that industry. Instead, prompted by my honourable friend for Burton and others, the action we took in the last Parliament on beer duty saved hundreds of pubs and thousands of jobs. Today, I back our pubs again. I am freezing beer duty and cider duty too. Scotch whisky accounts for a fifth of all of the UK's food and drinks exports, so we back Scotland and back that vital industry too with a freeze on whisky and other spirits duty this year. All other alcohol duties will rise by inflation as planned. Mr Deputy Speaker, there are some final measures we need to take to boost enterprise, back in the next generation and help working people keep more of the money they earn. All of these have been themes of this budget. Let me start with enterprise. Now, we Conservatives know that when it comes to growing the economy alongside good infrastructure and great education, we need to light the fires of enterprise. And our tax system can do more. To help the self-employed, I'm going to fulfill the manifesto commitment we made, and from 2018, Abolish Class 2 national insurance contributions altogether. That's a simpler tax system, a tax cut of over £130 for each of Britain's three million strong army of the self employed. Next, we want to help people to invest in our business and help them to create jobs. The best way to encourage that is to let them keep more of the rewards when that investment is successful. Our capital gains tax is now one of the highest in the developed world when we want our taxes to be among the lowest. The headline rate of capital gains tax currently stands at 28 per cent. Today I'm cutting it to 20 per cent. And I'm cutting the capital gains tax paid by basic rate taxpayers from 18 per cent to just 10 per cent. The rates will come into effect in just three weeks' time. The old rates will be kept in place for gains on residential property and carried interest. And I'm also introducing a brand new 10 per cent rate on long-term external investment in unlisted companies up to a separate maximum £10 million of lifetime gains. In this budget we're putting rocket boosters on the backs of enterprise and productive investment. Mr Deputy Speaker, in this budget I also want to help the next generation build up assets and save. The fundamental problem is that far too many young people in their 20s and 30s have no pension and few savings. Ask them and they will tell you why. It's because they find pensions too complicated and inflexible, and most young people face an agonising choice of either saving to buy a home or saving for their retirement. We can help by providing people with more information about the multiple pensions many have and providing more tax relief on financial advice, and the Economic Secretary and I do both today. We can also help those on the lowest income save, and the Prime Minister announced our help to save plan on Monday. Over the past year, we've consulted widely on whether we should make compulsory changes to the pension tax system, but it was clear there was no consensus. Indeed, the former Pensions Minister, the Liberal Democrat, Steve Webb, said I was trying to abolish the lump sum. Instead, we're going to keep the lump sum and abolish the Liberal Democrats. LAUGHTER <laughs> will take effect from midnight tonight but uh, <laughs> 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 Mr Deputy Speaker my pension reforms have always been about giving people more <laughs> Order! Order!
0: <laughs> Mr Opperman I know you may have been an amateur jockey but I don't want you to fall short on this budget
2: Just objection. Mr
1: Deputy Speaker, my pension reforms have always been about giving people more freedom and more choice. So faced with the truth that young people aren't saving enough, I am today providing a different answer to the same problem. We know people like ISAs because they are simple. You save out of taxed income, everything you earn in your savings is tax-free, and it's tax-free when you withdraw it too. From April next year, I'm going to increase increase the ISA limit from just over £15,000 to £20,000 a year for everyone. And for those under 40, many of whom haven't had such a good deal from the pension system, I'm introducing a completely new, flexible way for the next generation to save. It's called the lifetime ISA. Young people can put money in, get a government bonus, and use it to either buy their first home or save for their retirement. Here's how it will work. From April 2017, anyone under the age of 40 will be able to open a lifetime ISA and save up to £4,000 each year. And for every £4 you save, the government will give you £1. So put in £4,000 and the government will give you £1,000 every year until you're 50. You don't have to choose between saving for your first home or saving for your retirement. With the new lifetime ISA, the government is giving you money to do both. For the basic rate taxpayer, that is the equivalent of tax-free savings into a pension, And unlike a pension, you won't pay tax when you come to take the money out in retirement. For the self-employed it's the kind of support they simply cannot get from the pension system today unlike a pension you can access your money anytime without the bonus and with a small charge and we're going to consult with the industry on whether like the american 401k you can return the money to the account to reclaim the bonus so it's both generous and completely flexible Those who have already taken out are enormously popular, Help to buy ISAs, will be able to roll it into the new lifetime ISA and keep the government match. Mr Deputy Speaker, a £20,000 ISA limit for everyone, a new lifetime ISA, a budget that puts the next generation first.
2: Mr Deputy Speaker,
1: I turn now to my final measures. This Government was elected to back working people, and the best way to help working people is to let them keep more of the money they earn. When I became Chancellor, the tax-free personal allowance was less than £6,500. In two weeks' time, it will rise to £11,000. We committed in our manifesto that it would reach £12,500 by the end of this Parliament, and today we take a major step towards that goal. From April next year, I am raising the tax-free personal allowance to £11,500. That's a tax cut for 31 million people. It means a typical basic rate tax payer will be paying over £1,000 less income tax than when we came into government five years ago. And it means another £1.3 of the lowest pay taken out of tax altogether. Social justice delivered by Conservative means. Mr Deputy Speaker, we made another commitment in our manifesto, and that was to increase the threshold at which people pay the higher rate of tax. That threshold stands at £42,385 today. I can tell the House that from April next year, I'm going to increase the higher rate threshold to £45,000. That's a tax cut of over £400 a year. It's going to lift over half a million people who should never have been paying the higher rate out of that higher rate band altogether. And it's the biggest above-inflation cash increase since Nigel Lawson introduced the 40p rate over 30 years ago. Mr Deputy Speaker, a personal tax-free allowance of £11,500. No one paying the 40 b rate under £45,000. We were elected as a government for working people, and we've delivered a budget for working people. Yeah. Deputy Speaker, five years ago we set out a long-term plan because we wanted to make sure that Britain never again was powerless in the face of global storms. We said then that we'd do the hard work to take control of our destiny and put our own house in order. Five years later our economy is strong, but the storm clouds are gathering again. Our response to this new challenge is clear. We act now so we don't pay later. This is our Conservative budget, one that reaches a surplus so the next generation doesn't have to pay our debts, one that reforms our tax system so the next generation inherits a strong economy, one that takes the imaginative steps so the next generation is better educated, one that takes bold decisions so that our children grow up fit and healthy. This is a budget that gets the investors investing, savers saving, Businesses doing business so that we build for working people a low-tax enterprise Britain, secure at home, strong in the world. I commend to the House a budget that puts the next generation first.
0: Standing Order Number 51, the first motion entitled Provisional Collection of Taxes must be decided without debate. Will the Chancellor Exchequer please move formally? The question is that pursuant of Section 5 of the Provisional Collection of Taxes Act 1968, provisional statutory effects shall be given to the following motions. A. Stamp duty land tax, calculating tax on non-residential and mixed transactions, motion number five. B. We come to tobacco products duty rates, motion number 62. C. Alcoholic liquor duties rates, motion number 63. As many of that opinion say I. The contrary, no. The ayes have it. The ayes have it. I shall now call upon the Chancellor of the Exchequer to move motion entitled Amendment of the Law, and it is on this motion that the debate will take place today and on succeeding days. The questions on this motion and on the remaining motions will be put at the end of budget debate on Tuesday, the 22nd of March. Will the Chancellor please move the Amendment of the Law motion for me? The question is that it is expedient to amend the law with respect to the national debt and the public revenue and to make further provision in connection with finance. Two, that the resolution does not exceed to the making of any amendment with respect to the value added tax so as to provide A, zero rating or exempting emptying of supply, acquisition or importation B, for the refunding and amount of tax C, for any relief other than the relief That one, so far as it is applicable to goods, applies to goods of every description. And two, so far as it is applicable to services, applies to the services of every description. I now call the Leader of the Opposition, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn.
3: Thank you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker. The budget the chancellor has just delivered is actually the culmination of six years of his failures. <laughs> it's a budget.
2: <laughs>
3: Look,
0: this corner is not some kind of foreground attraction. We expect the courtesy to both sides who ever speak. I will to hear him. And as I said before. I know that the public in this country wants to hear
3: what the opposition has got to say as well. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Deputy Speaker, it's a recovery built on sand on a budget of failure. It's failed on the budget deficit, failed on debt, failed on investment, failed on productivity, failed on trade deficit, failed on the welfare cap, failed to tackle inequality in this country. And today. And today, Mr Deputy Speaker, he's announced growth is revised down last year, this year, every year is forecast. Business investment revised down, government investment revised down. It's a very good thing that the Chancellor is blaming the last government. He was the Chancellor in the last government. This budget, Mr Deputy Speaker, has unfairness at its very core. Made for by those who can least afford it, he could not have made his priorities clearer. While half a million people with disabilities are losing over a billion pounds in permanent in personal independence payments corporation taxes has been cut and billions handed out in tax cuts to the very wealthy. the Chancellor, the Chancellor has said to, has, has to be judged on his record and by the tests he set himself. Six years ago, he promised a balanced structural current budget by 2015. It is now 2016. There is still no balanced budget. In 2010, he and the Prime Minister claimed we are all in it together. The Chancellor promised this House that the richest would pay more than the poorest, not just in terms of cash, but as a proportion of income as well. So let me tell him how that's turned out. The Institute for Fiscal Studies, independent organisation, found that, and I quote, "...the poorest have suffered the greatest proportionate losses." The Prime Minister told us recently he was delivering a strong economy and a sound plan. But strong for who? strong to support who, sound for who, when 80% of the public spending cuts have fallen on women in our society. This budget could have been a chance to demonstrate a real commitment to fairness and equality. Yet again, the Chancellor has failed. Five years ago, and it was great words, he promised a Britain carried aloft by the March of the Makers. Soaring rhetoric. Mr Deputy Speaker, despite the resilience, ingenuity and hard work of manufacturers, the manufacturing sector is now smaller than it was eight years ago. Last year he told the Conservative conference, we are the builders, but ever since then the construction industry has been stagnating. This is the record of a Conservative Chancellor who's failed to balance the books, failed to balance out the pain, failed to rebalance our economy. It's no wonder that Mr Deputy Speaker that his close friend, the honourable member Member for Chingford and Wood Green, is is complaining, and I quote, we were told for the next seven years things were looking great. Within one month of that forecast we are now being told things are difficult. The gulf between what the Conservative government expects from the wealthiest and what it demands from ordinary British taxpayers could not be greater. The mates' rates deals for big corporations on tax deals is something they will be forever remembered for. This is a Chancellor who's produced a budget for hedge fund managers more than for small businesses. This, Mr Deputy Speaker, is a government. Mr Williamson, I don't know what it is that
0: you always want to catch my attention. Can I assure you, you've got my attention? Let's
3: not get it again. (laughs) Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. This is a government that stood by as the steel industry bled. (laughs) Skills, output, and thousands of very skilled jobs have been lost and communities ruined and damaged by the inaction of the government. The Chancellor set himself a one trillion export target. It's going to be missed by a lot more than a country mile. Instead of trade fuelling growth as he promised it is now holding back growth. He talked of the Northern Powerhouse and we now discover that 97 per cent of the senior staff of the Northern Powerhouse have indeed been outsourced to London, to the south. And for all his talk, for all his talk of the Northern Powerhouse, The North East accounts for less than 1% of government's infrastructure pipeline projects in construction. For all his rhetoric, there has been systematic underinvestment in the North. Mr Deputy Speaker, across the country, local authorities, councils are facing massive problems a 79 per cent cut in their funding. Every library that has been closed, every elderly person left without proper care, every swimming pool with reduced opening hours or closed altogether is a direct result of Government underfunding our local authorities and councils. Far from presiding over good quality employment, he is the Chancellor that's presided over underemployment and insecurity. With nearly. With, with nearly.
0: There are certain people that's testing my patience, so just think what your constituents are thi- thinking out there as well. I want to hear the Leader of Opposition, I expect you to hear the Leader of Opposition. If you don't want to, I'm sure the tea room awaits. Maybe there's a phone call for Mr Hoare, if you keep shouting.
3: Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Security comes from knowing where your income is and knowing where your job is. If you're one of those nearly nearly million people on a zero-hours contract, you don't know what your income is. You don't have that security. We have the highest levels, Mr Deputy Speaker, of in-work poverty on record, the largest number without security. They need regular wages that can end poverty and can bring about real security in their lives. Logically, Mr Deputy Speaker, low-paid jobs don't bring in the tax revenues that the Chancellor tells us he needs to balance his books. (laughs) household borrowing is once again been relied upon to drive growth risky unsecured lending is growing at its fastest rate for the last 8 years and is clearly not sustainable the renewables industry is vital to the future of our economy our planet indeed our whole existence it's been targeted for cuts Thousands of jobs lost in the solar panel production industry, and the Prime Minister, as we discussed earlier at Prime Minister's Question Time, promised the greenest government ever. Here again, an abject failure. Science spending also down a billion compared to 2010. Home ownership down under this Conservative government, a whole generation locked out of any prospect of owning their own home. And this is the Chancellor, who believes that a starter home costing £450,000 is affordable. It might be for some of his friends, it might be for some members opposite, it isn't for those people who are trying to save for a deposit because they can't get any other kind of house. We heard promises, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, before. Two years ago, the Chancellor pledged a garden city of 15,000 homes in Ebbsfleet, and many cheered that. His ministers have been very busy ever since then. They have made 30 Ebbsfleet announcements, and they have managed to build 368 homes in Epps Fleet. It is 12 homes for every press release. We need, we need obviously a vast increase in press releases in order to get any homes built in Epsley, or indeed anywhere else. And whilst we welcome the money that's going to be put forward to cack- tackle homelessness it is the product of underinvestment, underfunding of local authorities, not building enough council housing, not regulating the private rented sector that has led to this crisis. We need to tackle the issue of homelessness by saying that everybody in our society deserves a safe roof over their head. Mr Speaker, child poverty is forecast to rise every year in this Parliament. What a damning indictment of this Government. And what a contrast to the last Labour Government that managed to lift almost a million children out of poverty. 81% of the tax increases and benefit cuts are falling on women, and the 19% gender pay gap persists. Despite the protestations of the Chancellor, it is a serious indictment that women are generally paid less than men for doing broadly similar work. It re- will require a Labour government to address, this, to address this. And the government's own Social Mobility Commissioner said, and I quote, there is a growing sense that Britain's best days are behind us rather than ahead of us, as the next generation expects to be worse off than the last. The, The Chancellor might have said a great deal about young people. He failed to say anything about the debt levels that so many former students have, the high rents that young people have to pay, the lower levels of wages that young people get, the sense of injustice and insecurity that so many young people in this country face and feel every day. It will again require a Labour government to harness the enthusiasm and talent and energy of the young people of this country. Mr Deputy Speaker, Investing in public services is vital to people's well-being. I think we're all agreed on that, at least I hope we are. Yet every time the Chancellor fails, he cuts services, cuts jobs, sells assets, further privatises. That was very clear when we were looking at the effects of the floods last year. Flood defences were cut by 27%. People's homes in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cumbria, ruined because of his government's neglect of river basin management and the flood defences that are so necessary. Obviously, we welcome any money that is now going into flood defences. But, but, Mr. Deputy Speaker, I hope that money will also be accompanied by reversing the cuts in the fire service, which makes it so difficult for our brilliant firefighters to protect people in their homes. Reverse the cuts in the Environment Agency, which makes it so hard for those brilliant engineers to protect our towns and cities, and for local government workers who performed so brilliantly during the crisis of December and January in the areas that were flooded. Our education service Mr Deputy Speaker, invests in people. It's a vital motor for the wealth of this country in the future. So I ask, why have we seen a 35% drop in the adult skills budget by this government? People surely need the opportunity to learn, not have to go into debt in order to develop skills from which we, as a community, entirely benefit. The Chancellor announced yesterday Um, And there is not one shred of evidence to suggest that turning schools into academies boosts performance. There's nothing in the budget that deals with the real issue, which is teacher shortage, school place crisis or ballooning class sizes. He uh, spoke at some length on the issue of um, ill health amongst young children, and the way in which sugar is consumed at such grotesque levels within our society. And I agree with him about that. I welcome what he said. I am sure he will join with me in welcoming the work done by many members of this House, including my friend the Member for Leicester East and his work, and Jamie Oliver in his work, in helping to deal with the Dreadful situation of children's health. If we as a society cannot protect our children from high levels of sugar and all that goes with it with the later crisis of health, cancer and diabetes, then as a house we failed the nation. I support his proposals on sugar, as I hope all members of this house will. But there is an issue that faces the National Health Service. The deficit has widened to its highest level ever on record. Waiting times are up. The NHS is in a critical condition. Hospital after hospital faces serious financial problems and is working out what to sell in order to balance its books. Our NHS should have the resources to concentrate on the health needs of the people, not having to get rid of resources in order to survive. The Public Accounts Committee reported only yesterday that National Health Service finances have deteriorated at a severe and rapid pace. I didn't detect much in this budget that's going to do much to resolve that crisis. He's also cut public health budgets, mental health budgets, and adult social care. Earlier this month, the government forced through a £30 per week cut to disabled. ESA claimants. Yeah. Order. Order.
2: Order. Order. Just one, just one
0: second. I'm suddenly here because of the front bench conversations. If you need that conversation, I'm sure there's plenty of room in the tea
3: room for you. Jeremy
2: Corbyn.
0: Thank you. Thank
3: you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker. Last week we learned that half a million people will lose up to £150 per week due to cuts in personal independence payments. I simply ask the Chancellor this. If he can finance the giveaways that he's put in his budget to different sectors, why can't he fund the need for dignity for the disabled people of
2: this country? Yeah.
3: Mr. Speaker, the Chancellor said in the autumn statement that he had protected police budgets. Sir Andrew Dilnot confirms there has been a decrease in the police grant and 18,000 police officers have lost their jobs, fewer police on the streets and as my friend the member for Brent South pointed out in her question to the Prime Minister to cut down on dangerous crime against vulnerable individuals we need community policing and we need community police officers. 18,000 losing their jobs doesn't help. This is a government with failure on the police, failure on the National Health Service, failure on social care, housing and education. Public investment lays the foundations for future growth. The OECD recognises that, the IMF, the G20. The CBI and the TUC are crying out for more infrastructure investment. It's Labour who will invest in the future in a high technology, high skill, high wage economy. The investment commitments the Chancellor made today, yes, of course they're welcome, but they're related and they're nowhere near the scale this country needs. People rightly fear that this is just another press release on the road to non-delivery of crucial projects. Chronic underinvestment presided over by this Chancellor, both private and public, means that the productivity gap between that Britain and the rest of the G7 is the widest it's been for a generation. Without productivity growth, revised down further today, we cannot hope to improve living standards. Our party, the Labour Party, backs a strategic state that understands businesses, public services, innovators and workers combine together to create wealth and drive sustainable growth. The Chancellor adopted a counterproductive fiscal rule. The Treasury Select Committee's response that it was, and I quote, "...not convinced that the surplus rule is credible." They're right. Mr Deputy Speaker, the Chancellor is locking Britain into an even deeper cycle of low investment, low productivity and low ambition. We'll be making the case for Britain to remain as a positive case within the European Union and all the solidarity that can bring. But, Mr Deputy Speaker, over the past six years, the Chancellor has set targets on deficit, on debt, on productivity, on manufacturing and construction, on exports. He's failed in all of them and is failing this country. There are huge opportunities for this country to build on the talent and efforts of everyone. But the Chancellor is more concerned about protecting vested interests. The price of failure is being borne by some of the most vulnerable within our society. The disabled being robbed of up to £150 a week. These aren't the actions of a responsible statesperson, they are the Actions of a cruel and callous government that sides with the wrong people and punishes the most vulnerable and poorest within our society. He was defeated when he tried to cut, uh, take, make tax credit cuts next month by this House opposing it and by Labour members and crossbenchers in the Lords. But, Mr Deputy Speaker, the continuation of austerity that he's confirmed today particularly in the area of local government spending, is a political choice, not an economic necessity. It locks us into a continued cycle of economic failure and personal misery. This party, Mr Deputy Speaker, will not stand by while more poverty and inequality blight this country. We will oppose these damaging choices and make the case for an economy in which prosperity is shared by all. Let us harness the optimism, the enthusiasm, the hope, the energy of young people—not, not burden them with debts and unaffordable housing, low-wage jobs, and zero-hours contracts—but instead, act in an intergenerational way to give young people the opportunities and the chances they want to build a better, freer, more equal more content britain than this than this chance of the exchequer has proved he is utterly incapable of doing with his budget today yeah.